Hello, welcome to Feed, Play, Love, the bite-sized podcast for parents. I'm Siobhan Hunt. This is a show all about parenting. I speak to experts and carers about everything from fussy eating, toddler behaviour, sleep and more. Hannah Darlin is a professor at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. She's been a practicing midwife for 28 years, has led international research, spoken at national and international conferences, and teaches upcoming midwives. To say she's passionately involved in the birthing of babies is an understatement. But what led Hannah to this beloved career? She joins me in the studio. Hi, Hannah. How are you? Good, thank you. Tell me about your childhood growing up in the Middle East. How did your family come to be there? Yeah, it's a a really, (laughs) it's a really (laughs) different story. When people, when I tell people I was born in Yemen and they look at me with my blonde hair and my blue eyes and think, this is really (laughs) unusual. So my dad um, was actually a missionary in Yemen and he went out there and he taught himself Arabic and he's actually an amazing Arabic speaker. And my mum was a midwife and she trained in England and for for listeners who know the, the Call the Midwife series, she was one of the real Call the Midwives. She actually trained with Jennifer Worth, who wrote that series, and worked and lived in the real Nanata's house, which is on that famous um, TV program. And so she came over to Yemen, and she met my dad, um, and he taught her Arabic. Um, they had a rule back then in the, on the mission, in the mission field that you couldn't actually date or ask somebody out or even, you know, look them sideways until they'd been there two years. <laughs> so my father, being a stickler for rules, um, abided by that. My mother thought he wasn't interested. And then on the two years on, to the date, he asked her to marry him. Like, you know, <laughs> back then it was like full on. There was no kind of half measures. And... Um, so yeah, they got married, and I was their firstborn, and and I was born in Yemen in a in a little hospital in Aden, um, and I was the only white blonde, very blonde, blue eyed baby, and all the nurses, my mother tells me, fought over me. Oh, but my earliest memories, if I look back at my very first memories as a child, they were being in in a playpen in the corner of the clinic, while my mother checked on on um, pregnant women, and all these beautiful painted hands coming over my crib. To pull up my hair because they'd never seen hair the color of mine at this point <laughs> and that was it I grew up my 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 toys were spatulas and kidney dishes so I was sort of destined to destined to kind of end up in health when I was 10 I finally begged my way into a birth saw my first birth and then when I was 12 my next door neighbor's um, sister-in-law was having a baby and I got involved in her care and 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 it's a really kind of sad story as well because um, I realized she was very anemic um, and many of the women over there were and so I used to walk her to a local clinic to try and get iron injections and it was an hour walk and I'd carry some of the children and my friend would carry some of the children and she was really pregnant, trying to walk. And I remember going to her husband at one point saying, could you not just drive us in the car? You know, I'm 12 years of age at this point. I'm, you know, I'm already a young feminist. And he basically said, she's not worth the petrol money. And I remember the rage that came into my heart at this point that women were so invisible. Anyway, she gave birth and I helped catch the baby with the local midwife. And when this beautiful little girl was born, it was her third daughter. And as soon as she saw it was a girl, she said, take it away. 
And I took this beautiful, perfect baby to the the window, and the dawn was breaking over the over Yemen, and the and the minaret started the call. And I remember looking at this baby in the kind of the dawn half light, thinking two things, and I get, I get emotional thinking about it. I'm thinking women are just amazing; they produce entire human beings and do this with their body. But also, how terrible is it that because you're a woman, you have disadvantages. And I'm holding this little girl and the mum's told me to take it away because she wanted to produce a boy because if she doesn't produce a boy, she will be divorced by her partner or he'll get another wife. No matter how much I would explain the biology of man determining the sex of a baby, that was what the invisibility of women were. And I point I point to that moment of holding that baby who actually got named after me. Her name is Hannah. And I go, that was the birth of me as a midwife and a feminist. And I always say to my students, you cannot be a midwife without being a feminist because we deal with women's issues. We still deal with the invisibility. We still deal with the fact that mothers are not well supported. And our job is to go out there and make loud noises about the fact that the hand that rocks the cradle does rule the world. And until we realize it, we will not produce a better world if we don't support mothers. How incredible. At 12... (laughs) <laughs> it's a very formative age, though. It was like the universe was all, everything was conspiring for you to be in that moment at that age. And I was on the brink of womanhood myself. So I'm budding. I've got budding breasts and I'm I'm going through those hormonal changes. And my best friend who I was at the birth with, my best friend through my life, same age. And at, at, at 15 years of age, I left Yemen and we'd gone through, her and I used to have this amazing opportunity where she had nine brothers and I had four. So we had a lot in common. Her nine brothers all went to school. She wasn't allowed to go to school. My four brothers and I all did correspondence lessons. I had equal love and regard under my parents. But she was engaged a couple of times while I was there and I begged and begged her father not to do it to her. And she gave me her engagement ring off the last one to thank me for saving her from getting married. But then when I left, she married uh, a man who was in his 60s. She she was his second wife. She had a terribly sad life that unfolded. And and I look at the trajectory of two young girls who used to play together and, and had so much kind of love and affection for each other and what different roles and what different pathways our lives took. One, because I... I'm a woman, educated, advantaged, respected, and her because she's an uneducated um, woman who wasn't respected and not seen as having equal rights. So what happened when you left at 15 and what was your life like after that experience? (laughs) So I'd done correspondence school my whole life, which... It, it, back in those days, involved everything coming by ship. There were no emails. There was no. <laughs> they were they were boring printed out documents. When I think of what my children come home and they've got these visual displays, and I think, wow. No, I had I had twelve font printed on very boring documents. So I would do my lessons. They'd go in a sh- go to the ship, and the ship would take them. And it would be about six months if by the time they got back, if they ever made it. So I had this very disjointed feeling and I had no one else in my class because I was the only one so I didn't ever get what it meant to be good or smart or A or B or C you know I had never had that competition so I returned to Australia at 15 in that very vulnerable puberty 
period, having spent my entire life with no shoes on and, you know, I'm sure <laughs> I had... People pulling your blonde <laughs> hair. Yes. And, and being blonde, being weird, to coming back to a country where blonde was good. Yeah. So that was odd. And then I went to Pennant Hills High School where there were 1,500 students. And it was shockingly overwhelming. And I was in a, in a year where they had about 250. And I remember the teacher speaking to me really slowly. <laughs> Do you understand what we're saying? Because we came back with an accent that I don't think anyone on earth could ever identify. It was a cross between English, Australian and American. So basically we sounded South African. Um, and they put me in all the bottom classes. And I remember thinking, right, okay, I'm going to show you. And by the end of the first semester, I'd worked my way up to all of the top classes. <laughs> <laughs> so I am very stubborn. <laughs> yes, I can see that. Um, Pennant Hills is a, a northwestern sub, a suburb of Sydney. Sounds uh, and reasonably affluent, not too affluent, but reasonably affluent. Um, was the contrast between your life in Yemen and your life here pretty astounding for you? Absolutely. And they were strange things like white bread. Never seen white bread before. You know, bread was like these big hard lumps of of dark, you know, bits <laughs> that my father frequently broke his teeth on, other things that had sort of worked their way into bread. Um, you know, uh, it just an extraordinary amount of food, um, extraordinary amount of choices. I had come from a country where I'd had to always dress very um, demurely, um, with long pants and long sleeves and a scarf over my head when I went out so that I wouldn't get, um, you know, basically life wasn't good if you didn't do it. To coming back to Australia where people were strutting around in bikinis, like I found that <laughs> I never wore one, by the way. Uh, my daughters are blessed with a much better figure than I am. <laughs> but, you know, that was really, and I do, and I, and I remember in Yemen getting, um, um, I guess molested is the only word that I could put it, um, grabbed frequently, but breasts, you know, squashed up against counters. And I remember when I came back to Australia, I had developed such a habit that I could only go side onto a counter so I could keep an eye on anyone behind me. It took me years. Wow. It took me years to not drop my eyes when someone came down the street because women were expected to do that. So I definitely came with an extraordinarily misfitting kind of persona into this world. And what about the contrast in um, living conditions in the sense that, like you mentioned, your best friend, once you left, her life trajectory went very differently from yours. But even in that first, the first days, first weeks that you were back in Australia, you that juxtaposition between mm. life there and life here must have been pretty startling. Huge. And, and my mother tells the story. I don't actually remember it, but I believe it would be very true that the first time we all, all us kids saw a laundry mat and we were just glued to this, <laughs> this machine that went round and round with clothes in it because we, we had and television. So we had no television. So we arrived back and my parents were quite strict about television. We were allowed one program and it was Little House in the Prairie. <laughs> and my father would stand there with a, t with a blanket and he would be ready to throw it over the television every time an ad came on because he didn't want us children corrupted. Wow. And I remember seeing The Wizard of Oz when I was about 15 and being deeply traumatized by something that was so terrifyingly scary. So we we just came from this, you know. <laughs> it's almost it's very almost, sheltered. <laughs> yeah, it's sheltered but not sheltered because you saw a yes. side of life that most Australians will never see. 
I had friends of mine who I used to, I remember one little girl that we used to go and meet at the sweet shop and we'd buy sweets together and she was eight and she'd been betrothed to be married at eight years of age to an older man. Next day she'd stabbed herself and thrown herself down the the, the well. Um, I saw friends try to terminate um, pregnancies um, after rape with sticks um, so I, yes, you're right. I, I had a naivety and I had a wiser than her years, but all of it came back to this thing that has driven me through my entire career, which is women must matter if the world is going to be in a good state. And um, so interesting that it comes back to midwifery for you. Um, do you think without the experience in Yemen that your fe- feminism would be expressed through birth? Do you think you would have, would you, would th- was that the path always for you or was it that experience seeing how ill-used women were in Yemen and that birth experience that you had? Is it possible had uh, you had a different experience, you wouldn't have expressed your feminism through maternity care? Possibly, though, from the early age, I'd never, I've never ever wanted to do anything other than be a midwife. But that's my growing up with my mum and you know being around all the nurses and midwives out in in Yemen. Um, I would say probably the kind of the the rage and the activism um, was triggered by knowing how bad it can be. But I also say to my daughters today who don't experience that, who go to school, go to university, who have all of those privileges. There are still not enough women on boards. We still get paid differently for men for the same job. You know, we still don't recognise and support women when it comes to mothering. We're, we, men still assault women. We still have domestic violence. So while in Australia it's certainly not as bad as it was in Yemen, there are many, many subtle forms that we still need to fight um, to make the world better for women. I feel like I could just talk to you for the next 24 hours, Hannah, but I probably should wrap it up. Um, Thank you so much for coming in and speaking with us. My pleasure. That's Hannah Darwin. She's a professor of at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University. And we get her on Feed, Play, Love as much as we can to talk about all kinds of things to do with birth. So if you'd like to hear more from Hannah, just search for her name on the Babyology website. That's Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H, and Darwin, D-A-H-L-E-N. In the next episode of Feed, Play, Love, we'll be back with Helpline and our resident mothercraft expert, Chris Minogue, answering all your parenting questions. So there's many different ways of doing it, but if I would just stick to the basics, listening, going in when it's an active cry, helping him to settle. The other thing that I think doesn't get across is that it takes between five minutes and 15 minutes to settle a baby. So it's not a two-minute thing and it's not a one-minute thing. It's it's a distance thing. Yep. And it's that consistency. And and I think if you stick at it, you will pay it will pay off and in a month's time you'll be in a better place. If you want to ask Chris your questions, you can email them to us directly. The email is helpline at theparentbrand.com.au. Feed Play Love is produced by Elise Cooper, written and hosted by me, Siobhan Hunt. 